So uh, as Caleb mentioned last week, uh, we're starting a short sermon series. He started us off with it um, that we're calling Integrating Faith and Life. And the point of this sermon series is to help all of us, to help you guys um, know how to better live out your faith in all contexts of your lives. Um, because the, the reality is our faith is not just meant for Sunday mornings, for community group, for LTG, for those types of things. Um, we should not just be praying and thinking about Jesus during those times. The gospel should affect every single aspect of our lives. So whether it's marriage, um, singleness, friendship, parenting, vocation, um, and so many other things, the gospel has implications on all of those areas of our lives. It affects the way that we think about them. It affects the way that we live them out, the ways that we behave and act and speak. Um, it affects everything. Um, but the reality is that um, we know that it can be challenging at times to really understand what the gospel implications are in some of those areas. Um, and so this sermon series is meant to help provide clarification and direction for you in that, and hopefully motivate all of us to, to seek gospel-centeredness in those areas of our lives. So last week, uh, when Caleb preached, he preached on sex and marriage, and so that's what he started off on. Um, so as you might imagine, we started there because we have a lot of married couples in this church. So that means that the mo for the vast majority of you, the most significant context um, in which you live your life is marriage. And so we started by helping you think through how does the gospel affect your marriage. Um, but my intentions this morning are to kind of build off of uh, the foundation that Caleb started last week. Um, I'm going to be preaching about a term called complementarianism. Now, this subject transcends marriage. It's not just relevant to the context of marriage. So if you're not married, this is still pertinent and relevant to you. But um, the clearest effects of it are seen in marriage. Um, so my hope this morning is, as I said, to kind of build upon the framework that Caleb established last week with his sermon and to add on it. Um, he talked about what marriage is and my hope this morning is to look at how men and women are uniquely called to participate in marriage with one another, given um, who God has made them to be. So um, kind of going back to the term that I use, for those of you who aren't familiar, familiar with what I mean by complementarianism, um, that is a word that describes the reality that men and women complement one another. And when I say that, I say that complement as in complement with an E, not an I. Um, I mean, I hope that we are complementing each other um, with an I, but that's not the particular meaning of the word that I have for this morning. Um, what I'm saying is that we have different but equally important roles um, that we fulfill as we live together as men and women. Um, and if we want to be faithful as the men and women that God has made us to be, we need to recognize those differences. We, we want to appreciate them and to live them out with one another to his glory. And like I said before, marriage is the most obvious place and context in which that happens. Um, so 
I do want to start by acknowledging the fact that this topic, complementarianism, is a very controversial subject today, um, especially as um, with the prominence of feminism today, many feminists reject it as an archaic and patriarchal idea. Um, I, I know many people that view it as an oppressive and evil idea. Um, and as Christians, we need to be able to take those kinds of accusations seriously though without being led astray by them. So we just shouldn't assume that they're right in saying those things. But we do need to consider, at least consider, why they have those thoughts, why they have those beliefs about it. So think about it for a second. Why do, I'm sure you all have people in your lives that fit this category, why do, you, why do those people hate this idea? Um, or maybe, maybe you yourself struggle with it. I don't doubt that there's some of you here that maybe even know that the Bible teaches it to some degree, but you struggle and you wrestle with, okay, what does this actually mean? Do I really want to embrace this idea? So why are people uncomfortable with it? And that's where we need to stop and acknowledge that most likely it's because of people's experiences, what people have faced. People hate it because rape is a reality in this world. They hate it because there's domineering men who abuse women and children all of the time. You may be one of those people who has faced that and been a victim of that. And if that's the case, I am so, so sorry that that is true for you. Horrible, absolutely disgusting things have been done in the name of complementarianism. As Christians, we need to face that reality it is an injustice to the victims of it if we don't. But we must also remember that those instances, those examples that I've just mentioned, are not complementarianism. They are a twisted corruption of it. The picture that Scripture gives us of what faithful and biblical complementarianism is is as far from those abuses as you could possibly imagine. And that ultimately is my deepest hope for us this morning. Please know that despite what has been done to you or to others that you know, biblical complementarianism is beautiful, it's wonderful, and it is good. It allows all people, men, women, and children, to thrive and to flourish and to prosper. And that's because it's, it's God-ordained, it's sin-killing, and it's Christ-exalting. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. That's what I want you to see from the passages that we look at. Faithful complementarianism is God-ordained, sin-killing, and Christ-exalting. So my prayer is that we would all see that, that we would repent if, there's, if we have sin in these areas of our lives, and that we would pursue faithful obedience to the Lord in them. Now, to, to prove my proposition... Um, I intend to take us to a couple different passages in Scripture. Um, it's, it's actually going to be kind of cool because Caleb looked at a couple passages in Genesis last week, and we're actually going to look at those same passages but focus on different aspects of them. And um, as I was kind of preparing for this and after hearing his sermon, it was, it was cool for me to reflect on just how rich and deep um, every passage of Scripture is. There's just so many different truths that you can glean from every single verse. Um, and I think this is going to be an example of that. Um, but anyway, like I was saying, 
we'll look at a couple different passages this morning. We're going to start by looking at some verses in Genesis 1 through 3. We're not going to read the whole chapters, uh, but we're going to look at some passages in those, and then we're going to jump to the New Testament and look at some verses in Ephesians 5. Um, but like I said, we're going to start by looking at Genesis 1. So if you, wanted, if you want to, um, please turn your Bibles there. Um, and we're going to focus first on how faithful complementarianism is God-ordained. And we're specifically going to look at verses 26 through 31. So if you would um, follow along with me as I read uh, Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. The word says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So I want you to notice a couple key points from this passage. First, note that we are made in the image of God. Verses 26 and 27 both explicitly say this. Um, We're designed in his likeness. Sometimes that idea, we don't usually use that phrase, like someone is made in our image. We don't use that term very frequently outside of a biblical context. But it means that we are designed in his likeness. We resemble him. Think of a portrait of someone. Um, One thing I've always been impressed with is artists who draw portraits because I have absolutely no drawing skills whatsoever of my own. Um, but, but they do, and they do incredible works of art. They can take um, a person and they can make, they can basically just replicate them onto a canvas, ha- campus having, or canvas. They can have all the right like proportions. It actually looks like the person, whereas like, if I try to draw something, draw something the person's probably going to look like a troll of some kind, but they make it look like the actual person. They get um, facial expressions right, um, all the fine details. And so it's just remarkable what artists can do. But with everything that human artists can do in making portraits that resemble the people, um, they have nothing on God. When he designed mankind in his image, he made zero mistakes. Every detail and trait that he has given us is intentional and purposeful. Now, that doesn't mean that we are like God in every single way. He's omniscient. He's infinitely powerful. He is a spirit. And we are very limited, weak, and embodied 
um, beings. But that doesn't mean, but it does mean that the way he designed us is specifically intended to resemble and reflect him. Like I said, the way that he made us, every aspect of it is purposeful and intentional so that we might resemble him, so that we might be a reflection of who he is. There's good and wise purpose to the way he, he has made us. And ultimately, it's to bring him glory. And that's especially important when we consider verse 27, uh, which brings us to the next thing I want us to notice from this passage. The second key point is that the passage very clearly communicates that we are created as male and female. So we are made in his image and we are created as either male or female. This tells us a couple things. So for one, God is the one who establishes gender, not us. He is the one who has designed us um, as male or female, like I said. It's his intended order for us as humans. So when the doctor at the hospital announces that you have a boy or girl, that doctor isn't the one deciding the gender of your baby. The doctor um, isn't just assigning this previously gender-neutral human child to a category that he wasn't or she wasn't already in. The doctor is just stating the obvious. The, the baby's gender was biologically determined at the moment of conception and was ordained by God um, as either male or female. So God is the one who establishes as, us as men and as women. And only he has the power and authority to do it as our creator. And this is huge because especially when we consider the transgender movement that is gaining momentum today, that one of the central tenets of that movement, movement is the idea that our gender is just a social construct. It is something that we, we basically determine for ourselves. We are autonomous beings that can decide whether or not we want to be male or female. We make that decision for our own. But we recognize that as those who are creatures created by God, he is the one that determines that for us. We don't decide that. Um, and so it's, it's, it seems like a, a really basic, trivial thing to acknowledge that God made us as sexual beings. But that is hugely impactful on the implications of how we think about transgenderism and same-sex marriage and things like that. Um, but there, there is also a second thing that we need to note about our creation as male and female. We're all equal in our existence as image bearers of God, both men and women. And this is clear in verse 27. It says, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So Moses, who's the author of Genesis, is implying equality of the genders here. He isn't just saying that men are created in God's image. So it says, in the image of God, he created him. He's not just saying that men are created in God's image, but then there's also women who aren't. That's not what he's saying. And we know that because look back at verse 26. Um, Look at how verse 26 starts. It says, let us make man in our image. But then what, ex what does it say next? And let them have dominion. The word man is not being used specifically to refer to one individual singular person. It is referring collectively to all human beings. That's why it's referring to them in the, the very next sentence. 
Um, Verse 27 should be understood in the same exact way. This means that both men and women display the brilliance of God's image equally. There is nothing inferior about men or women in their resemblance to, their relationship with, and their representation of God. No one's ability to reflect his holiness or glory is in any way diminished by being a man or a woman. We are all equally capable of doing that. And this is so important in helping correct people's thinking about complementarianism and viewing it as abusive or oppressive because faithful complementarianism recognizes that all people, regardless of their gender, are valued and treasured image bearers of God. And they should be valued and treasured equally because of that. Complementarians do not view gender, any one gender, as superior over another. Therefore, no one has the right or permission to abuse or control or dominate anyone else. If a man thinks he is better than a woman or child because he, simply because he is a man, he is rejecting biblical teaching and he is opposing God. He's not walking in light of God's teachings. The Bible teaches us that all are worthy of the same respect and dignity. But then finally, a third key point that I want us to notice in this passage of Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31, is the fact that God has designed men and women and that it is good and right that he did so. Look again at verse 31. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Now, notice that this is the first time that God has gone so far as to say his work is very good. He said it's been good multiple times before this. Um, But this is the first time where he has stopped, looked at what he has done, and said it is very good. This is huge because it tells us that everything that God did to distinguish between men and women and make us distinct in creation is good. It's not a result of the fall. It is not due to sin. Gender differences don't exist because we are sinners. They have always existed and are part of God's original perfect and wise design for us as his image bearers. So what do we have so far? We have that in Genesis 1, we see that God designed us as his image bearers to be distinctly male and female. Um, And he wants us to embrace that sexuality that he has given us um, because he has ordained it, that it is good and right. And both men and women are equally important and ultimately our sexuality is meant for our good and for his glory. Now, there's still a lot that Genesis reveals to us about man and womanhood, though. So I want us to look now at Genesis 2, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 25. So if you need to flip to the next page, do so. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25. So follow along with me as I read that. It says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, this is where we get to the specifics of what complementarianism means. Our main point that we're looking at right now is that faithful complementarianism is God-ordained. Well, God did more than just ordain us as physically male or physically female. There's more to it than that. He ordained that we would have different roles as creatures as well. And we see that in this passage. Um, we see a clear demonstration of the, those different roles here. Now, the terms that I'll use to describe these different roles, I might use a couple different ones, but the primary ones I, I want you guys to remember are headship and submission, and those are referring to men and women respectively. Now, as, you, as I say those things, you might recognize that those terms aren't actually used in this passage in Genesis 2. But um, we'll see that Ephesians 5, when it is reflecting back on this passage, um, when it connects us back to it, it uses these various terms. And so this is Paul's own interpretation of Genesis 2, um, is this idea of male headship and female submission. And so those are the terms um, that I'll kind of use to talk about it. Now notice that, kind of getting back to the passage, this passage has zoomed in on what we have already read in Genesis 1. So we see the events of day 6, where God creates man and woman. Now this is kind of a zoomed in perspective of what, what God did during that day. We get a more detailed explanation of how God went about creating, creating Adam and Eve. And the first thing I want you guys to notice is that God created Adam first. He started with man and then created woman from him. Now this, if you think about it, was actually alluded to in Genesis 1 when God used the word man to describe all people. Like think back to what I had mentioned about verses 26 and 27 in chapter 1. Um, the word man is used to collectively refer to men and women. But why didn't God just use a gender-neutral term to describe them, like humanity or just people in general? He could have done that, but he didn't. He used the word man. And this is, in a sense, our first glimpse of God revealing the role that he has given to Adam and to, to men particularly. Um, but again, notice that God created man first and then woman from man. Now, he didn't create them at the same time, but he could have. So that's also something else to notice. God could have spoken Adam and Eve into existence simultaneously. It would obviously wouldn't have been hard for him. He created the rest of creation very easily. He could have created man and woman simultaneously together at the same moment, but he didn't. So why? Now, the fact is, the, the reason that he created man first is not meant to tell us that men are better or more complete than women. Um, 
If it was, then God wouldn't have mentioned how bad it was for Adam to be alone in the first place. And he wouldn't use the term a fit helper or a fit companion to refer to Eve for Adam. The fact that Eve was meant to be a fit companion for him is proof that they are of equal essence and substance. And that, that's seen in the fact that she is made from the very rib of Adam. It's not meant to say that she is only, she's like a lesser part of him, but it's, it's, it's to say Eve is the same type of creature. She is of the same essence, the same substance that Adam is. They are meant to go together. They are equal. They are like each other. Um, so again, it's not meant to communicate inferiority. It's meant to communicate that they are one and the same, and they are meant to be joined together, which is why the passage later talks about how a husband and wife come together as one flesh. So it's meant to show their union and their togetherness, not a disparity between um, their significance or importance in any way. So again, instead, Eve's creation from Adam is meant to communicate man's responsibility. It's his headship. It's not meant to show he's better. The creation account is a beautiful way that God demonstrates multiple truths at once. I mean, think about it. He is showing both equality and unity, as I was just talking about, but he is also showing distinction um, in giving male headship um, and primary responsibility before bringing Eve into the picture. And it should make us think about the Trinity. Um, isn't God three distinct persons who are equally God? Um, and don't each of those three persons fulfill different roles? Humanity is, in a sense, able to bear the three-in-one image um, of God because men and women are spiritually equal but distinct and different in role. So that is one of the ways that God has designed us to image him and image the Trinity by creating us as male and female. It is not meant to show, again, I really want to stress this, it's not meant to show superior superiority or inferiority. But again, getting back to the passage, Adam's role as head is one where he bears primary responsibility for leading his partnership with Eve in a God-glorifying way. That's the, I, the, I think that's the simplest way that we can think about um, what it means to be to have headship and to be the head. It's to bear the primary responsibility for leading the partnership with Eve um, in a God-glorifying way. And so, men, that is your responsibility as the head of your marriage. God wanted Adam to find a suitable partner for him, and he did. And he shows his responsibility in doing so by naming Eve and then marrying her and leaving. It, it, it talks about the husbands and wives um, where the husband leaves his parents to go unite with his wife. The husband is initiating that relationship. The husband is leading in that partnership with his wife. And we see that demonstrated in Adam. So God intends for Adam to initiate the relationship and lead it to fulfill God's intended purpose. And that's, that's exactly what Adam does here. And Eve is there to support Adam and to help him. God uses the term a helpful a helper that is fit for him. She's there to support and assist him because he can't fulfill that purpose alone. 
So Adam's role as head means that he is the one primarily responsible for making sure their relationship is fulfilling God's purposes and glory. And this is a unique responsibility of Adam in Genesis 2. And like I said, the New Testament verse that we're going to look at point back to this very passage to show that it wasn't, wasn't just Adam that had that responsibility. It's not like this was just a unique thing for Adam and Eve, but us as men and women are different. Ephesians 5, as we'll see, makes it clear that Adam and Eve were representatives of each of their distinct genders, and we are called to live like their example and fulfill the roles that they had towards one another. And so just as Adam had that role of bearing that responsibility as head, men, all men, are called to the same. And just as Eve's role was to be a helper and to follow Adam and to assist him in fulfilling that God-glorifying purpose that he is seeking um, for them both together, all women are called to do the same. Now, what we have in Genesis 2 is our first example of men's and women's equal but different roles. They complement one another, as I've said. Man is called to lead for God, and woman is called to help for God. And this is especially true in the context of marriage, but it's also true outside of that context as well. Um, That's why one of the things is that our church, as well as um, I would argue all other biblically consistent churches, have male pastors and not female ones. That is man's role as head to bear that responsibility and authority. Um, And it's not an easy responsibility to bear. It is a weight, it is a burden, but we are called to it by God. So God intends for our roles to be lived out in the home and in the church. And this is meant for our good. When men and women live out their roles together, they're able to glorify God in ways that are far more vibrant and profound than we would be able to otherwise. Um, And that's because of a simple fact. And this gets back to the whole main point that we're looking at, that it's God-ordained. It is his purpose. It is his design. Faithful complementarians know this, and they they appreciate that. Um, We know that we flourish when we work with, not against the grain of God's design. And so that's what we're seeking to do when we live out the roles that God has given us. Um, Unfortunately, though, no passage of Scripture makes that more clear than the next passage we're going to look at, which is Genesis And I say unfortunate because it does make that clear by showing what happens when we do work against the grain of God's design, when we do fail to live up to his his intentions and purposes. Um, So now we're going to focus on our next main point, and that's how um, faithful complementarianism is sin-killing. But we'll start and we'll recognize that by seeing how unfaithful complementarianism is sin producing. So we're going to look at Genesis 3, and we are going to read a bigger chunk for this one. It's going to be verses 1 through 19. So we're going to read the the fall account. Um, So if you would, follow along with me as I read that now. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desires shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust, you shall return. A couple things from this passage reinforce what have already been said about complementarianism. So first, it's important to realize what is happening at this moment of the fall. Eve has been tempted by Satan, and she chooses to believe him over God. And that's why she eats the fruit. She chooses disbelief over belief in God. But notice that she does so, but when she does so, she gives a piece to Adam, who is with her, as the verse said, um, and he eats. And that little detail is huge. Adam was with Eve during this whole exchange when Satan is tempting her, um, when Satan is causing her to question God's goodness and wisdom and design. Adam is standing there the whole time overhearing this. And he's silently and passively just letting her be tempted. He's just letting it happen. He's not stepping in and saying something to contradict and to counter the claims of Satan. He said and did nothing to try to stop this. And then when Eve did sin, he decided to join her in it. So in this crucial moment, Adam is failing twice 
to fulfill his role as head and leader. Not only did he fail to speak up and guard Eve and himself from temptation, but he let himself be led by her into sin. Um, And that resulted in the fall that we are facing the consequences of today. Um, And what did God do next? He immediately knew and went looking for them. Um, But notice that he doesn't go to Eve first. You would think that he would since she was the one who acted first, but he doesn't. He calls out Adam. He, he seeks to talk with him first. He's asking him where he is. And then Adam is the one who's responsible for telling God what he and Eve did. It's only after Adam recites the story and implicates Eve, because notice he, he blames her, and even notice that in the passage, he, he in a sense blames God. He, he, he says that it's the one that, um, looking back at the passage, um, the woman whom you gave to be with me. So he's almost going back and blaming God for, for Eve. Um, it's like when a parent is like angry with their kids and they tell the other parent, like, oh, like, go deal with your kid. They don't want to acknowledge that it's their own child. Um, it's like Adam is doing the exact same thing here. He doesn't want to even acknowledge his relationship and responsibility to Eve. Um, he wants to put that back on God even. Um, but notice that after he, it's not until after Adam implicates Eve in it that God even questions her about it. Um, so God did that because of Adam's role as head. He is the one responsible for making sure this sort of thing didn't happen, but he did. He allowed it to happen, and he's the one that is accountable for it. Um, not entirely, obviously Eve is as well, but he bears the primary weight and accountability for it. God's manner of approaching Adam and Eve both reasserts the roles that God has given them and it forces them into recognizing how they have failed to live up to them. And because of it, all of creation, as I said, suffers the consequences of that. But also pay attention to God's words to each of them. So first, God begins by cursing Satan, which makes sense because Satan is the reason that this temptation was present in the first place. Um, And then God curses Eve, And what is his curse? He gives her labor pains and tells her that her desire, um, in some translations it says is for your husband, but the the idea is that she's actually working contrary to her husband. She's opposing him. Um, She'll she'll struggle with wanting to kind of go against him um, for the rest of her days. Her desire is to be contrary to her husband and he will rule over her because of that. In other words, God's curse is that Eve's role as helper um, will no longer be easy since she rejected it in the first place. It's going to be hard for her now to live that out. Um, It will be physically, emotionally, and spiritually painful for her. Um, She'll suffer the physical pain of labor now um, in bearing children, and she will fight against her husband. Um, A relationship that should be characterized by peace and unity and love and goodness will be rampant with conflict and heartache now. Um, And because Eve was representative of all women, that's true for women today as well. And then look at what God says at the beginning of verse 17 in addressing Adam. God starts by explaining why he's punishing him. He punishes him because he's listened to his wife and because he ate the fruit 
that was from the uh, that was forbidden to be eaten. So God did not just punish him for eating the fruit. It's more than that. Adam is also punished for listening to Eve. And that's punishment because he's again failing to uphold the role that he was given. And notice what the punishment is. It's not only Adam who is cursed. Um, not only men who are cursed even either. It's all of creation is cursed by this. It says that the very earth itself has been ruined and tarnished and stained because of what Adam has done. Paul says in Romans 5 that because of Adam, all of mankind sins and dies. As had the greatest curse and burden is placed upon him. He was responsible for leading and guiding Eve in truth, and he didn't. He should have stopped Satan from tempting her, and he didn't. Because Adam rejected his role as head, the heaviest weight rests on his shoulders. And ultimately, the way that Genesis 3 unfolds, it really only makes sense if you have a complementarian perspective of it. And what we see in the chapter is the devastating effects of what that unfaithfully lived out results in. Because Adam and Eve failed to embrace their God-given roles, the fall took place. The, it, all of creation from that point forward was devastatingly altered and changed because of their failure um, in that regard. Because they rejected their role, sin entered humanity and has stained us all. Now, I don't say that to make you think that blending gender roles is the worst of all sins. That's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is that when we fail to live according to our God-given identities as men and women, temptation will enter our hearts and we will sin. That is not the context in which our lives are meant to be lived. On the other hand, when we embrace who God has designed us to be, when we live out those roles, that intrinsically creates an environment that helps guard us against some temptations and sin. Like I said before, like the, this point is that faithful complementarianism is sin-killing. Think about it. When men actively lead their wives and others towards God, they keep themselves and others from sin. When women actively submit to their husbands and help others pursue God, they are equipping themselves and others to fight sin. Families that are characterized by men and women who faithfully embrace their callings are families that remain focused on God and persevere. They, and that means they flee temptation, they repent of sin, and they obey God. When we are faithful in these regards, we are killing sin in our own lives and we are keeping ourselves from temptations that we might not otherwise even experience. It is good for us. But faithful complementarianism is, is, is more than just sin killing. It's not just keeping us from something bad. It's also esteeming something good as well. And that gets us to our final point that faithful complementarianism is Christ exalting. And that's what I want us to focus on next. So, so far in the sermon, I've been a bit more expositional than practical. I've been kind of establishing an argument for why complementarianism is true and good and right. Um, 
At this point, I want to try to become a little bit more practical. This is the point where I really want you to see how beautiful and wonderful, like I said at the beginning, faithful complementarianism can be and should be. We live in a world that bears the curse that God placed on Adam and Eve. And so we fight with each other. We try to control each other. We are selfish and manipulative and even at times abusive. Men don't lead rightly and women don't follow rightly as well. There is so much sin in the relationships and in the marriage in marriages of this world. Everyone experiences it. And so it's easy to see complementarianism as a bad thing, but it is not meant to look that way and it doesn't have to. We can have such a better picture of it to live out and to experience. There is hope and the struggle to pursue faithful complementarianism is worth it. It is good to strive for that even when it is hard. It's what we were designed for and as I said, ultimately it exalts Jesus Christ. Think about who he is and what he has done for us. Jesus the Son of God the Father, came to earth under the direction of the Father. And while he was here, he obeyed every commandment of the Father. He was always seeking to um, follow the Father's will and to bring him glory. Um, and though he had infinite power, infinite glory, infinite authority, he could, he could command anyone and anything to do whatever he wanted, he never sought to do that and to display those things. He limited himself to be a weak man while he walked on the earth. He submitted himself to earthly authorities and he even allowed himself to be killed unjustly by them. Plus, he also faced the wrath of God, though he didn't commit any of the sins that he paid for. So Jesus exhibited so much submission in his earthly life. And he did that so that he might glorify the Father. Um, but then he was glorified by the Father because of that. And he did all of that to initiate a loving restoration of humanity with God. He did that so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. He initiated that relationship for us. Just as Adam initiated a relationship with Eve, Christ initiates our reconciliation with God. It is only because of him that it's possible. He is the head of the church. He leads us by his spirit with patience and love and mercy so that we can grow into Im even better image bearers of God who glorify him and experience the joy and contentment and satisfaction that only comes when we walk with our God. And when he returns, he will have all authority and will reign as king over all creation. He never stops caring for us. He always watches over us and he provides for all of our needs. So do you notice the connections that we already have just in those things that I pointed out of who Christ is and what he does and what he has done? Do you see how those are connected to the gender roles that I've already talked about? Faithful complementarianism is is Christ exalting because Christ himself is the perfect example of both headship and submission. He embodies both roles perfectly and fully. 
When women help and submit to their husbands, they reflect how he submitted himself to the Father and to earthly authorities. And when men bear the weight of headship, they reflect Christ's loving leadership as he secures and maintains our reconciliation with God. We all adorn the gospel of Jesus through our faithfulness, and we exalt him by reflecting different but equally glorious aspects of his nature. There's aspects of his nature that men can display and highlight more, just better than women. And on the flip side, there's ones that women can display and reflect and highlight better than men because of the way that God has designed us. They're equally good and glorious. And when we live out our roles together, we get a a fuller picture of Jesus Christ than we would have apart. And so we're able to glorify him and exalt him as we live out our manhood and womanhood, however he has designed us to be. But again, that leads us to the question of practice. What does it actually look like to exalt Christ and reflect him in our marriages and relationships? Now, this is the time when I want us to turn to Ephesians 5. So if you would turn to Ephesians 5, we're going to look at verses 22 through 33. I'll give you guys a moment to turn there, and then I'll read it. Okay. So follow along with me as I read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Paul wrote this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So again, we see there's a direct quote here going back to Genesis 2. And so Paul is saying these commandments that he is giving to wives and to husbands, he is giving them these specific directions because of the roles that God gave them all the way back at the very beginning when they were designed. And so he's drawing this back to the beginning, to creation. This, the things that Paul is saying here are not simply a cultural thing where this was just for that societal moment but they're irrelevant to us today. No, he's connecting this back to the very beginning, to God's design for us. And so these things are just as relevant and true for us now as they were then. But again, 
what does, so what does this mean? Like, how, how should we live? I want to start with men. The question is, what is biblical manhood? What does it mean to have headship? In a single word, it's love. Biblical manhood is leadership that is first and foremost love. Did you notice how many times the passage calls husbands to love their wives? So this passage, there's eight verses that talk that's directed to the men and how they are to um, interact with their wives. And in those eight verses directed to the husbands, the command to love wives is given four times. It's not just stated once, it's stated four times. It is reiterated to stress how important and significant it is. And did you notice what other commandments are given to husbands? Um, I doubt it because there actually, there really aren't any other commandments given to husbands. I mean, it says that men shall leave their, their father and mother and hold fast to their wives. So it does say what husbands will do. But when it comes to an explicit commandment that is given to husbands, the only one that is given in this passage is to love. Love, 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 love. Four times it is commanded to love your wives. And Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 3. He talks about the same subject too. How, because of the gospel, how should men and women interact within their marriages? And Peter highlights the exact same call to husbands. He calls men to live with their wives in an understanding way, showing them honor is the term he uses. In other words, he also, like Paul, is calling men to love and to show patience and sensitivity to their wives. He's saying the same thing that Paul is. And guys, this is huge. Paul and Peter knew the unique temptations that we as men would face as leaders in our homes. That's why they call us to love. They didn't command, you don't see Paul commanding us to lead in this passage. I mean, that is, that is implicit. That is what it means to be the head. So we should understand that we are called to lead, but our focus should be in our leadership on loving. We are commanded to love. Leadership attracts pride like lights attract moths. As those who are meant to bear the weight of leadership, we must always do so for the sake of others, not ourselves. We will be tempted to be selfish, but Christ's leadership was one of selfless love, and that's what we want to follow. That is the example we are meant to obey and to imitate. He served and sacrificed his life for the sake of his people. Therefore, male headship is not and will never be male dominance. Husbands have the responsibility to create an environment in which their wives can thrive to the glory of God. Men, your wife is not there to make you happy. She's there to help you glorify God, not yourself. She is not your servant. You, if anything, you are hers. You are commanded to put her needs before your own. That is what a leader does. It is your responsibility to make sure her gifts and her talents can be used for the sake of gospel ministry and godliness, for the sake of your own marriage and your family and for the church and those around you. That is exactly what Christ modeled for you on the cross, giving his life, sacrificing for your sake. You are called to do the same thing for your family. 
Male dominance is an abhorrent corruption of what male headship is supposed to be. It displays something that is utterly contrary to what the gospel teaches us. The gospel is a message of headship that is humble and sacrificial so that others could be redeemed. That is what Christ has done for us. Headship is a role where you serve so that others may be free. It gives life. Dominance, on the other hand, is a role of selfishness and oppression. That is not what the Bible calls us to. Your marriage should not ever resemble that in any way. That's abuse. As men, we should hate male dominance and authoritarianism. We must never, ever tolerate it in ourselves or in those around us if we see it. We must kill it when we see it. So ask yourselves, do you belittle your wife? Do you ignore her? Do you blame her for problems in the home rather than figuring out how you can help her solve them? Do you manipulate her to get her to do what you want? And you could be doing that either passive-aggressively or very directly. Are you more, more concerned about what she is doing for you rather than how you can bless and serve her? Do you regularly go out of your way to make your wife happy and just like bring her joy? Or do you only do it in occasions when you feel obligated to do so? Guys, you will be held accountable for every single word, every single action, every single angry tone or facial expression that you have used to tear down your wife. When you, are marri- when you married her, you made a commitment to build her up, not tear her down. Repent of the ways that you have used your headship for your own gain. And thank Jesus that he, as your leader, loves you and leads you far better than you love and lead others. He does it far better than you could ever imagine. Look to him as your righteousness and your hope and your example to follow. If you feel guilty, if you feel conviction now, don't just turn inwards and and pity yourself and just want to shut down. Acknowledge that Jesus has set you free from those old patterns that you have exhibited. He is your righteousness before God. He is your hope. Embrace that, rejoice in that, and turn to a more loving relationship with your wife. Lead her in gentleness and patience and consideration. Prefer her over yourself. And don't swing back and err in the other direction either. Passivity is a rejection of God's good design too. As men, we must be those who initiate care and protection and provision. You shouldn't just sit back and simply watch as others, especially your wives, step up and pursue Christ without you. Don't let them pull you along. Be the one who initiates and leads. Help lead others to Christ. Um, as, a, as I was working on the sermon, I was reflecting on um, some, a portrayal that really, I think, highlights what I mean by this. I love the way that um, like manliness is portrayed in the Lord of the Rings series. Um, and there's one particular scene that comes to my mind that really exemplifies it for me. Um, it's in the movie Fellowship of the Ring, and it's when the group um, is in Lothlorien. Uh, so they've just gone through Moria, they're in Lothlorien, and they're meeting with Galadriel, who's the elf queen that lives there. And um, one of the things that really strikes me about the scene uh, is 
how bleak Galadriel's so-called encouragement to them is. Um, so when they're saying goodbye, in her effort to like encourage them and motivate them and like just like esteem them to go and to fight hard for um, for like light and goodness, she says this. The quest stands upon the edge of a knife. Stray but a little, and it will fail to the ruin of all. Yet, hope remains while the company is true. And every time I watch the movie, I listen to that, and I think, why in the world would you say that? Like, how, how is that encouraging? How is that helpful? How is that going to motivate them and give them hope and uplift them? It's like, that just, that just tells me, it's like, you're probably destined to fail. You're probably going to die. But go ahead and try, um, and we'll see what happens. It's like, that, that instills fear. That doesn't instill hope. But what is powerful to me after hearing that is that none of them give up, even though they know that their efforts could be very well doomed. Every one of the group members, even the hobbits, they strengthen their resolve. They acknowledge the the sobering reality that they could fail, they acknowledge that, they embrace that, and they strengthen their resolve to carry on with a fiercer determination than they had before. They're either going to succeed or they're going to die trying. Stopping is not an option in their minds. Perseverance and commitment is their only option. That is how all men should be. That's how we, sh- that's how we must be. That is what we are called to in the Bible. We are called as those who imitate Christ in our manhood to strive for the good of others and God even to the point of death. We are called to pour ourselves out even when we feel like we have nothing left. The responsibility and calling is to build into each and every, that responsibility and calling is built into each and every one of us as men. We cannot be passive. Now, um, in his book, Marriage Matters, Winston Smith addresses this, and I think he gives some good, really practical um, points to consider. He says this. It's a little bit long of a quote, but it's, it's really good. He says, the goal of holiness carries a high price. Jesus's love for us was costly and painful, painful, ultimately requiring him to lay down his life for us. Husbands are called upon to love in a similar way, to know and imitate Jesus's example of love to the church. Your love is to be sacrificial, placing the needs of your wife above your own. Husbands, in what ways will helping your wife grow require you to suffer loss? How will you have to say no to yourselves so that you can say yes to love? Sometimes, when we think of loving sacrificially, we envision martyrs being burned at the stake. A few husbands might have the opportunity to protect their wives from a bullet or shove them out of the way of a speeding car. But if you're observant, you'll notice that your day is filled with ways to sacrificially love your wife. Maybe it's as simple as loading the dishwasher, tucking the kids into bed, throwing a load of laundry into the dryer, or as simple as taking a few minutes to pray for her over something she's anxious about. That is what biblical manhood is. That is what we are called to as men. And we are meant to live that way regardless of whether or not we're married. It's exhausting and draining work, but it offers us the privilege and joy of demonstrating the headship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
We magnify him as we seek to live as servant leaders and to be like him. He did this for us, and every effort is and will be worth it for us when he returns, when we do the same. Men aren't the only ones who get to glorify Christ in their role, though. Women also get to demonstrate the beauty of Christ, and they do that in their help and submission. So look with me again at verse Ephesians, at, um, Ephesians 5. Verse 22 calls wives to submit to their husbands. Verse, um, verse 24 does as well. And verse 33 says that they are to respect their husbands. Again, going back to comparing this passage to, to Peter, in 1 Peter 3, he gets a little bit more specific, um, but he basically says the same thing. He commands wives to submit to their own husbands. And that's, that's a point that I want to make sure to, that you guys notice. Women, you are not called to submit to all men as you do to your husbands. Um, your role as helper should be demonstrated in all areas of your life. You want to be a helper to all of those, to all people around you. But that unique relationship of marriage calls you to a level of submission to your husband that you are not called to, to any other man. Um, And I want you to know that and to recognize that, that you are not called to just submit yourself to all men um, equally. So, Know that, and husbands know that as well. Men know that you are not called to lead all women like you lead your wives. Um, but what does submission look like? One thing that submission is, is, is not, is silence. Being submitted and respectful does not mean that you have no voice. It's actually the opposite. Wives are called to help support their husbands, which means giving counsel and input Um, so that the wisest decision can be made for your family. Men are responsible for making the final decision on matters and bearing the primary weight of the consequences of that decision. So if that final decision goes bad, that man bears the primary weight and burden of those consequences. But women should help their husbands in making them. Wives, a lot of the time you are more competent in thinking through a decision than your husband is. At a lot of the time, you're probably going to have a better idea than him on what to do. And I know that's true. For a lot of the couples in Redeemer, I know, for instance, that it's best for a lot of the wives to be the ones that like, keep the budget and manage finances and run other aspects of the household. That's good. That's ways that God has gifted you and, and given you talents. I know that the women of this church are very smart and able So women, help your husbands, give them feedback, share your thoughts, speak up and assist them so that you can make the wisest decisions for your family that ultimately glorify Christ and exalt him above all else. But remember that he is the one that bears the greatest weight of that decision. He is the one most accountable to God for it. So don't undermine him. Don't usurp control or manipulate your husband to force him into doing what you want. Don't complain about him to others or demean him with jokes. Respect him and trust that he is seeking to love and prefer you over himself. But yes, I know that he is a sinner and therefore he will not always do what is best. I know that and you know that, of course. In fact, 
he will often fail both you and God in his leadership. But I encourage you, follow him as long as he isn't causing you to sin. If he's calling you to sin, don't. But if he's not calling you to sin, follow him. Be patient with him and hope in Christ who does change hearts and sanctify sinners. And if he does try to lead you to sin, lovingly refuse and patiently remind him what is good and right. As you walk with Jesus, wait for your husband to do so as well if he isn't. Your responsibility is to show the same gentle, quiet, and persevering spirit that Christ demonstrated on the cross. That is a precious and beautiful thing before God. And you get the privilege and honor of displaying that to the world, of ordaining the gospel in that way. And know that I don't say that flippantly. Some of you might be facing unbelievably hard circumstances right now as you try to submit to ungodly husbands. Your husband might not be saved. He might be threatening to physically abuse you or he might actually be doing so. He might erupt into intense bouts of anger. You might be fearful of him. He might make horrible decisions for your family. You probably doubt whether or not things will ever get better. You could be wondering whether you need to leave the situation for a time, especially in the case of abuse. Or you might be contemplating divorce because you feel like things can't get better and won't. You might feel hopeless and at your wit's end. And if that's you, I ask you to do, to do two things. First, please talk to someone. Um, share what you are going through with a friend or one of, our, one of our church elders or just anyone else that you trust. We want to counsel and help you through that. We want to bear that burden with you and care for you in whatever ways that we can. And, but second, and more importantly than that, Look to Jesus. He knows what you are going through. He walked down the same dark road that you are walking down before you did, and he walked it much farther than you have. He faced the most intense ridicule, the the most intense abuse and pain and suffering and abandonment than anyone ever could. Your Lord knows what you go through, and he has experienced it himself. He sympathizes with you. So cast your heartache on him and remember that your submission is not wasted or pointless. He sees, he knows, and he is pleased with you. As you faithfully submit through hardship, you are exalting your Lord. Ultimately, friends, these things are so important even if they're not easy. Men and women hurt one another all the time because of our selfishness. We fail to embrace our identities as distinct men and women, and because of that, we all suffer. We do it together. But there is hope. Like I said, faithful complementarianism is possible if we look to Christ. He is our example, and he's the one who has equipped us and made it possible for us to live it out. Your marriages could be wonderful examples of biblical manhood and womanhood. Men, love your wives sacrificially. Accept your role as protector and provider and leader. Actively seek to serve her and to help her and your children thrive. Take care of them before you take care of yourself. And women, follow your husbands. Help and support them as they seek to lovingly lead you and your kids. Respect and trust them. 
when we all do these things, we live out the God-ordained, sin-killing, and Christ-exalting picture that God has given us as men and women made in his image. And let's look forward to the day when all of the wrongs that we experience and all the wrongs that we commit will be made right and our faith will be perfected. On that day, we will behold our Lord and we will finally understand more perfectly than we could ever imagine how our own distinct identities as men and women point us to his beauty and to his glory and to his incomparable loving loveliness. So let's pray for that.